I don't know if Kirk planned that on purpose or not, but as we're singing those songs, I'm thinking, those are Green Valley Bible Camp songs. It's only a little over five months and we'll be headed for Green Valley. And then he had to end with a song with Green Valley in it. Did you notice that? I like it. Tonight, we're going to talk about a topic that is incredibly important. And indeed, it's a requirement for eternal life. But yet, it's a topic we don't ever seem to spend much time talking about at all. It's a topic we don't spend much time preaching or teaching about. And yet it is one, as I said, that is essential to eternal life. What is it? Tonight we're going to talk about the famous, infamous, mysterious, but infinitely important to eternity, Book of Life. Tonight we're going to talk about the Lamb's Book of Life. What? exactly is it? Who exactly is in it? And how and when does one get in it? Those are the three questions that I hope to answer with tonight's lesson because although when we hear the term book of life, typically I would guess, at least for me, the first text that comes to mind is the one in Revelation 20, 11 through 15 typically. However, at the same time, this idea of God keeping a book, the book of life, in some form or fashion, is threaded throughout the fabric of quite a number of scriptures. So let us begin with question number one. What exactly is the book of life? What is it? I don't believe, nor do I think you can necessarily support, that it is an actual, literal, paper-paged book like you see in a library. And there are several reasons I don't believe it's an actual, literal, physical book. Number one, stop and think about what happens to books. One of my favorite, my favorite Bible of all time, I have a Holman, Christ, uh, Holman Master Study Bible. Uh, that I had in the 80s over at the house. And you start flipping through the pages of that thing and they're all yellowed and you know how, how books as they get older, they, they turn yellow. Also, Jesus we know, we know for a fact that Jesus used earthly terms to depict heavenly things. He told Nicodemus that in John 3 and verse 12. And when we think about the term book of life in the book of Revelation, one of the things that we always have to keep in mind when discussing things in Revelation, Revelation is a book where John tells us what his vision was, what this, call it a dream, call it a vision from God, call it what you will, but it is a vision that John saw. These were not actual, literal things that happened. They symbolized things, they illustrated things, but God was drawing him a picture of what was going to happen in the ages that would, that would come after John. And so things represented other things. It was symbolic language or what we would call apocalyptic. Open with me tonight in your Bibles to Revelation 10, not 20, but 10. And we will note this idea that a lot of times in the book of Revelation, 
It's not talking about something literal, but it's giving an illustration. It's using figurative speech to describe something literal or something that's going to happen. For example, in, Rome, in Revelation 10, 9 and 10, it says this. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And this is what John saw in his vision. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Now, we all know pretty well that can't be a literal book. I mean, take a bite out of your Bible and see how sweet it is. We, we understand the terminology that it's illustrative, that it's symbolic. He says, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. The Unger's Bible Dictionary says this, and I believe they have it right. To eat a book, to eat a book, is a figurative expression meaning to master the contents of the book, to receive those contents into one's innermost being. We've seen this before in scripture. We've seen it with Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter two and verse seven, through chapter three and verse four, Ezekiel's told to eat a book. Now obviously he doesn't literally sit down and take a bite out of a songbook or God's word or the, an Old Testament text. So, my only point in saying all of this is that there's a, a lot of figurative language instead of actual, literal, physical facts in some books in the Bible. One of them in particular is the book of Revelation, and we know that. And so we see this book of life in the book of Revelation is not necessarily an actual, literal, physical scroll, hardback, paperback, or even ebook. I mean, today we got ebooks, right? I think God's intelligence is way above ebooks. <laughs> so it's, it's probably not a, a literal book like that. Can't be, not really. So I believe that a lot of insight can be gained into what this book of life actually is by taking a look at the words in both the New Testament and the Old Testament that we translate book from. In the New Testament, the Greek word is biblios. But it doesn't always mean a book. For example, it can mean a scroll, a parchment, a roll, a book. And the Old Testament word, sefer, I believe is how it's pronounced. My Greek is horrible. <laughs> it's spelled C-E-P-H-E-R. That is the word translated book in the Old Testament. That has a bunch of meanings, and it's not necessarily like, like always a book book, for example. Bunch of different scriptures here. Sefer, the word from which we get book in the Old Testament, can mean a bill of sale or a deed of purchase. We see that in Jeremiah 32 and verse 12. It can also mean a bill of accusation or an indictment handed down. We see that in Job 31 and verse 35. The same word from which we get book in the Old Testament can mean a bill of divorcement or a certificate of divorce as it's used in Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 3. It can mean a letter, 2 Samuel 11:14. 14. It can mean a volume, Exodus 17, 14, and Deuteronomy 28, 58. There's a number of different things that this word sefer can mean. There's others. It can also mean a missive, a document, a letter of instruction, a written order, a written decree, a genealogical register, or a record book. 
So when we kind of consider the terminology for once we get the book, the, the Sefer in the Old Testament or the, the Biblios in the New Testament, it can mean any different number of, of things. Not necessarily always a book. Ungers finally says the book of life is a figurative expression originating from the ancient custom of keeping genealogical records Nehemiah 7 and verse 5, verse 64, and Nehemiah 12, 22, and 3. The Book of Life is a figurative expression originating from the ancient custom of keeping genealogical records in those texts and also of registering citizens for a number of purposes such as we see in Ezekiel 13, 9. In other words, this whole idea is, when you put all this together, God is represented as having a record of those under his special care. And I think probably that's about the simplest that you can boil this down to. The point is, when we talk about the book of life, God has a record of those under his special care. Keeping that in mind, if, if that's what the book of life is, it is just some sort of record that God is keeping, and it is. Question number two. Who exactly is in this book? Who's in it? Well, we can start in the Old Testament talking about that. And yes, there's a lot about a book in the Old Testament that God is keeping, this record that God is keeping. Turn to me in your Bibles to Exodus 32. When I first studied for this lesson, it struck me as strange. I didn't quite realize there were so many places where throughout the ages. You know, we think again of that text in Revelation 20. We think of that as, as being the book and the record and the book of life and all that, and it is. But it struck me that there's a lot of other places that it talks about God keeping a record of those who are his, keeping a record of his own special faithful people. So who is in it? Well, we know the story in Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain getting the law of God. The Israelites decide they want a golden calf made, so Aaron helps them make a golden calf. Moses comes down off the mountain, has the, calls the folks to him, all the Levites come to him, they go through the camp, and they kill a number of their brethren. And then what happens here, beginning in verse 30 of Exodus 32, Exodus 32, 30, it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin, and they've made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses had this idea that God was keeping a record. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. And so we begin to see this picture unfold of, of this record that God is keeping and that people who sin against God, people who, who have their sins recorded there, God says, I'm going to blot them out. That's kind of the first time we see this idea of this record, okay? 
Verse 34, God says, Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. God says, There's a day of reckoning coming. I'll take care of it then. And those whom I have a record of sinning against me in this, I'll blot them out of the book. As we move on through time, we see another reference to this book in Psalm 69. Please turn there with me. Psalm 69. Psalm 69 talks about unrighteous people, talks about people who continually sin against God, evil people. It talks about how they will be blotted out of God's book. But it also tells us of the names of the righteous who will not be blotted out of his book. Just begin with me in Psalm 69 at verse 21. Obviously a prophecy in reference to the Messiah who would come. Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let, not, let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So in this psalm, we see again as we try to answer question number two, who's going to be in the book? Those who are living righteous. But those who are constantly up to evil... They're not going to be there. They're not going to be in this righteous book. Again, as we come to the close of the Old Testament, very last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, we see this very clear contrast again between who will be in and who will not be in the book. We see again the difference between those people who will reject and refuse to serve God and hence won't be in the book versus those people who will fear him and meditate on him in his word and therefore will be in the book. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. There are some who had said, or as it says in verse 14, you have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Some folks doing some things here they hadn't ought to have been doing. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. This goes along with our Wednesday night class on whose prayers does God hear. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. God kept a record, as it were, remembered, kept track of, whatever terms you want to put it in, these people who said, wait a minute, we don't want to be like those that we've just described. We fear the Lord, verse 16. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, the righteous did, and a book of remembrance was written before God for those people right there who feared him, who meditated on his name, who said, we don't want to be like all this evil that's going on. We want to be different than that. 
God had a record, keeps a record of these people. Not only do we see the type of people who are and are not in this book of life in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament as well. And just like the New Testament, you know, <clears throat> the New Testament takes everything to a higher level. The book of Hebrews is all about this. We have a better worship system, right, than they did in the Old Testament. Yes, we have a better Savior. We have a better everything, okay? They had God's word and they had it good with God when they followed him, but everything for us has taken up a level. Everything for us is better in the New Testament. Hebrews, as I said, talks about this incessantly. Well, this idea of the book of life, this remembrance that God has, is taken up a level, as far as I'm concerned, at least, as I read through some of these New Testament passages in which the book of life is mentioned. For example, turn with me to Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. As you can see, this is not a one-time idea that's expressed in the book of Revelation chapter 20. This idea of a book of remembrance. We see just how special, and I mean special, incredibly special, powerful, unique, and important it is to have your name, your name, in the book of life, in Luke chapter 10. Begin to me in verse 17. Probably if I was in Luke 10 instead of Mark 10, it would make more sense to what I'm trying to tell you. Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> Jesus selects and sends out 70. Sends them out <clears throat> to work. And they return in verse 17. Luke 10 and verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy. They were ecstatic. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, listen, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? In the days of demon possession, if you could just make them take a hike, wouldn't that be pretty cool? That would be like today, when somebody's got cancer, when somebody's dying of something, if the miraculous gifts were still around, which they're not, but if they were, if we could just walk up to them and heal them. When somebody's on the prayer list and they're going to have surgery and it's pretty intense, if one of us is the preacher, just brothers and sisters could just walk up and say, there you go, you're good. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, these 70 could drive out demons in that way. Jesus had given them that power and ability to do that. So they're pretty happy about it. I'd be happy about it too. I think this is really cool. But I want you to notice what Jesus says to them. He says to these disciples who come back, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. That would be pretty cool too. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Stop right there. If Jesus gave you that ability, you could walk up, you could let rattlesnakes hit you, and it just like, no biggie, I got this. Wouldn't that be cool? And so the disciples are just, they're, they're just powered up. They're just amped up over this. This is, this is incredible, God. The power you've given us, the ability you've given us to, to drive out demons and do these things, and, and it would be incredibly special. But look at what Jesus says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't be happy about these trivial, those are trivial things to the Lord. Don't, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Look what Jesus says. All of these things you consider to be so incredible and you're so filled with joy because they're nothing. 
They're nothing compared to having what you have. And what you have is your names written in heaven. That's what you ought to be rejoicing about. That's what ought to make you just over the top happy. That's the important thing, not, this, not all this other stuff. I mean, yeah, that stuff's good stuff, but he says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in those things, but rejoice because your name's written in heaven. This was the most incredible thing. And Jesus understood this was far more special than those other things. Your name is written in heaven. Whose name? Turn to me to Philippians 4. We spoke at length last week about the problem in the church between two sisters, fellow workers of Paul's, Euodia and Syntyche, and spoke at length in that lesson about them. But I want you to notice something here in this text about them in Philippians 4, 2 and 3. Paul says, I employ Euodia, implore, not employ, I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche. I'm begging you, he says, be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Don't miss this. There was a problem between these two women. Some people believe the whole book of Philippians was written pretty much to address the kind of attitude and mind they should have been having. And they, they've got this struggle. Did you ever, don't raise your head, don't raise your hands, don't shake your heads, just, just answer the question in your mind. Did you ever have a problem between you and another brother or sister in the church? Did you ever have a problem between you and one of your brethren? It was kind of, yeah, it was a problem. These two had it. But notice what Paul says. I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, number one. With Clement also, number two. And with the rest of my fellow workers, number three, whose names are in the book of life. Euodia and Syndicate were still in the book of life, even though they struggled amongst themselves. Do you see that? Clement was there in the book of life. There were other workers that were there in the book of life. They were still in the book of life. So what that means to me is, is, is sometimes, sometimes because we're different personalities, sometimes because we come from different places, sometimes because we're struggling with different things, we're going to get a little messed up with one another. Like I said, like two porcupines right back into the same hole. Sometimes we kind of like that as Christians. Don't want to be, but sometimes we are but their names are still in the book of life. Takes a little more than that to get your name blotted out of the book of life. Isn't that an awesome thing? That's an awesome thing as far as I'm concerned. And I, and I love the fact that in this passage, Paul says, and the rest of my fellow workers. Paul doesn't even bother to name them all, but you know what, it don't matter because God knows them all because their names are still in the book of life. God knows their names. Paul might have forgotten a few of them or not had time to, to talk about them, or write, but God knew their names are in the book of life. And I'm reminded here of Psalm 103, 8 through 14 that says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. 
He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Yodi and Syntyche weren't blotted out of the book of life the moment they had a little struggle between the two of them, or even a big struggle between the two of them. Not yet. Psalm 103 continues, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. To me, as I look at this text and I see that all of these folks are still in the book of life, as Paul says, God understood these two women who were but dust. He understands our weaknesses. God does understand our weaknesses or else he never would have sent Jesus. What an awesome God. Now that doesn't mean that if they continued on and they continued to let the problem get worse and they rejected God and they rebelled against God and did all of those things down the road, then God would blot them out. But my point is, look at the patience of God. We know that those who refuse to fear him enough to humble themselves and repent, I don't know if you audience in Tiki ever repented or not, but I know at this point they're still reachable. Well, they appear to be as far as Paul is concerned because he says, hey, help them, get this straightened out. Now, if they went on, as I said, and they refused to humble themselves and repent, if they were unwilling to try to get it right despite their failures, and you know, sometimes we fail as Christians. And we beat ourselves up a whole lot more than God does. We do. One of Satan's biggest weapons is to get us to feel overly guilty when we make a, when we make a mistake. Sin is never right. God never likes sin, no. But if we let some of the dumb things that we sometimes do and some of the personality conflicts we get in drive us off from the church, Satan's won. Can God forgive us if we repent and turn back around and get things squared away, can he? Then let's let him. Why do people leave the church? Now, as I said, if a person refuses to, they refuse to try to get it right, they reject God, well, then they'll have their names blotted out. For example, turn to me to Revelation 3. God makes this very clear, Revelation 3, starting at verse 3. Talking to the church in Sardis, talking to his own people, his own blood-washed congregation, a congregation of the Church of Christ in Sardis. Chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 3, God says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. They had some things they needed to fix. Had some things they needed to fix. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. God, when we, when we mess up, when we don't get along the way we ought to, when we don't love the way we ought to and serve the way we ought to, and we make those dumb mistakes we sometimes make with one another, and we all do it, we're all human, God is patient with us. God wants us to repent, just like he gave the congregation of Sardis. He said, repent. He knew they weren't right, but he said, he gave them time. But he said, look, if you won't, and it's just a done deal, and you're not gonna, then you're gonna force me to blot your name out of my book. There are a couple of other texts in Revelation that mention this book that I just want to look at quickly. Revelation 13, 
beginning at verse 4, talks about it. Revelation 13, beginning at verse 4, says, So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. All of this symbolic. It's what he saw, but it represented something. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. What is that all about? God's, let me make it real simple. God is saying, those who stay faithful, those who don't sin against me and, and worship, whatever this represented, without going into a lesson on Revelation tonight, God's saying, the only ones who don't worship him are those who are faithful, those whose names are in the book. Why are their names in the book? Their names are in the book because they stay faithful to me. And if they stay faithful to me, I'll take care of them. The other text is in Revelation 21. It mentions the book yet again. Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, we have this description of heaven and what it's going to be like. Symbolic language, if you will. Some say it also can represent what happened, that the church would be victorious over the Roman Empire. But again, without getting into a Bible study on Revelation tonight, after he describes this new Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, I want you to go with me to verse 22 of chapter 21. John says, I saw no temple in it, that is in this beautiful new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There'll be no night there. And they'll bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. How important is it that your name is in the book of life? It is essential. It is all important because if your name is not in the book of life, you're not going to spend eternity in heaven. It's got to be there. You've got to get it there. And you've got to make sure that it's never blotted out. So, in short, the Lamb's book of life can be illustrated this way. Please open your Bibles to the inside front cover. No, I'm serious. <laughs> that, wasn't a that wasn't a misstatement. Open your Bibles to the inside front cover. And then flip one or two or three pages, and in most Bibles, what you will find in one form or fashion is a place to list births, marriages, a family record. You see it? Something along those lines. Well, you keep track of family, right? What I want for us to understand is this. The Lord's or the Lamb's book of life can be illustrated as God's family register. 
God the Father. Okay, here's my children. This is my child, this is my child, this is my child, this is my child. What it is, is a list of the births in God's family. That's what the book of life is. Those who are born again, those who have not sinned against God because there's no record of their sin. And so, as we've seen this evening, those in the Lamb's book of life are those of God's family. His children, his family register, if you want to put it in those terms. I think that's a good illustration. The Lamb's book of life are those with whom there is no record of their ever having sinned against God. We saw what he said to Moses, those who have sinned against me, their name's gonna get blotted. So we need to make sure that there's no record of our sin. Number two, we've seen that righteous, grateful, forgiven, and God-fearing people who meditate upon his name, Malachi 3, there in the book. Children and servants of the living God who humble themselves before and seek to obey him always, the way Euodia and Syntyche needed to. That's another part of being in the book. And if you want to see just how incredibly important it is that your name is there, now let's go to that text most people think of. Turn with me to Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. John says, this is what I saw. Actually, let me start in verse 10. Revelation 20 in verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Is that true? Yeah, it's true, because that's what the text says. And you hear me say that a lot, but I think sometimes we read over these verses and, and we don't really let it hammer home that, yeah, that's going to happen. There's nothing on earth that's going to, that's real, that's going to happen. Then he says, I saw this. I saw a great white throne, verse 11, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Heaven and earth are gone, the heavens as we know them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Everybody's going to be there. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. God's going to open his family register. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. You know, it would almost be like if you have a large family. Let's say you've got, here's another illustration just to think about tonight. You've got this multi-billionaire, and he's got a large family, and he dies. And so... His will is going to be read and his billions distributed and all of his kids are there and extended family and all of that and there's a couple there that maybe they're not his kids. Maybe they're gold diggers, but they go down through the list of his kids, they open up the family register, they open up the will and they say this is the lineage, these are the ones and their names are right there and they can prove whose kids these are. They can prove that he was dad. This draws that picture to my mind that, that these are God's children. There's no record of their sin. God's kept a record of those who are faithful to him. And, and that's what this Lamb's Book of Life is. And, and they're going to be judged according to their works. When, when God opens that book on Judgment Day, and, and again, I don't believe it's a literal book, but the idea of opening a book, if you're under the blood of Christ, do you know what that means? That means that every sin that was ever written in that book covered over with red blood. God can't see it. There's no record of sin there. Isn't God awesome? That's what we have in Christ. It's like incredibly powerful whiteout, only it's red. 
God opens the book despite all the sins that any one of you, and I won't point to any one of you, but I'll point to me. It's like my sins in there, the pages are just covered in red blood. There's, there's no record of sin there. Just my name and the good things I've done, but the sin isn't there. That's, that's God's remembrance. What an incredible thing. And they were judged each according to his works. Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Death is no longer needed. Hades, this holding place, is no longer needed. They're cast into that lake of fire we read about in verse 10. This is the second death. Watch this. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. How important is it that your name is there? All important. Brings us to the third and final question, which we've already answered, but consider this. Just how and when does one get their name written in this book? That was our third question. Well, if you've ever sinned, your name can't be there. Because your sins have separated you from God. That's what it says in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. So, if you've ever sinned, your, your name can't be in the book, because this is for those who haven't sinned against God. God is holy. As a holy father, we must be holy like him. That means, that means blameless, sinless, pure. We look at some of our lives and we say, well, I ain't as holy as I'd ought to be. Probably true. I don't know as any of us are as holy as we'd like to be. But you know what? The record of your sins is gone as far as the east is from the west when you allow God to cleanse those sins and to cover them up under the blood. Isn't God awesome? The only thing strong enough to expunge the record, to erase our sins, to wash our sins away, the only thing strong enough to keep on cleansing us from those sins that we commit on a daily basis is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we get the sins gone. The only thing strong enough to wash away our sin from God's memory is the blood of his son. So if you've ever sinned, you need to have your sins washed away. You do that through baptism, we know that, for that specific purpose. We repent and we're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, and there goes all the sin, it's gone. The record's not there, it's just blank pages if you want to use the page analogy. But also, stop and think about it. At the point that we are baptized into Christ and our sins are forgiven, what does it say about that in John 3, 3 through 5? It says we're born again, right? We're born again to the water and the spirit. Well, when we're born again, you know, in the front of your Bible, if you've got a place for births of your family record, when a new baby's born, you write the name in there. Well, it works the same way, spiritually speaking. When we're born again of the water and the spirit, when we're baptized into Christ and we bury that old man of sin, we rise to walk up in newness of life, we're a baby in Christ, right? The Bible uses that terminology. We're a baby in Christ, but guess what? We're born again into the family of God, and so our names are written in God's family register. Isn't that what it says in Galatians 3, 26 and 7? For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you have been baptized into Christ and put on Christ. That's where we become his sons and daughters. That's where we get our names written in the book, the family register of God. Because we're holy and sinless at that point like he is. And so we rise to begin a new and holier, more Christ-like life, Romans chapter 6. Walking in the light of God's word, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 is a part of God's holy, royal, 
heaven-bound and blood-washed family, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Isn't it awesome to be in the Lamb's Book of Life? My name is there. Paul wraps this up real well, just as we'll wrap up this lesson tonight with one final text, Romans chapter 8. Beginning at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Watch this. Take this into your heart tonight, hardcore. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We know we're led by the Spirit when we're led by that which the Spirit wrote down. For you did not, verse 15, receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba means like daddy. And it's like a little two or three year old that just, that just climbs up in their father's lap to, to just enjoy that security and this total trust and peace and comfort. And, and the idea here is when we become children of God and, and we're written in the family register or the Lamb's Book of Life and our sins are washed away, we just trust God completely and he's our hope and our refuge and our comfort. And we go to him for all of our needs like a, like a little child. Again, saying, Abba, Father, or Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are. What tense is that? Current. Present tense. Not we're going to be. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're in the family register when our sins are gone. That's why we're called children of God. We are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I am so grateful tonight. There's a lot of things in my life that I'm grateful for. But none of them come close to the gratitude I have that my name is written in heaven is yours. Have you had your sins washed away by being baptized? Have you been born again to the water and the spirit, risen to walk in newness of life, by faith having become a child of God and having your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? And if you have done that, if you're here tonight and you've done that, we also must make sure that our name doesn't ever get blotted out. And the only way our name gets blotted out once it's in there is if we turn our back on God forever, if we reject what he said, if we don't obey him. Now, some of us struggle to some degree to do what God said we do. We're human, we're weak. But like you Odie and Syndicate, God knows that's going to happen sometimes. And what God asks us to do then is do everything we possibly can to fix whatever it is we've messed up. But God is patient. That doesn't get our name blotted out. Listen, the first time your kids do something wrong, do you kick them out of the family? <laughs> Hopefully not. God certainly doesn't. Are you blessed enough tonight that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? If it's not, you can be baptized. You can have your name put in the family register. If you need the prayers of the church to be a more faithful son or daughter, to make sure that your name never gets blotted out, to have a more humble heart, whatever we can do to help you. Come on down front right now as we stand and sing. The song is meant not just to close the sermon, but to encourage you to come right now as we stand and sing.